Galatians 5, uh, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Behold the word of the Lord, you may be seated. Great God, we thank you for your wonderful grace towards us. We thank you for the blessing of your gospel. We thank you for the blessing of your spirit indwelling us and producing fruit in us. Lord, now as we open your word, we pray that you would cause these truths to sink down deep into our hearts. Lord, may you do what only you can to open up our eyes, ears, hearts, and minds. May it be your truth that is spoken and nothing but your truth. Uh, Lord, pray that you get me out of the way uh, and impact your people. God, we pray that you would cause your word to come alive in the hearts of your people. And all for your glory, pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up again in Galatians, and we are continuing now in what is the more practical section of the letter. Having introduced us to the conflict that is between the flesh, or the sinful nature, and the spirit, Paul has begun to give us examples of each. So over the past two weeks, we looked at some of the works of the flesh, uh, examples of what it looks like when somebody lives in accordance with their sinful nature. And now we get a wonderful and well-known list of what it looks like when somebody lives and walks in accordance with the Spirit. So this now is the answer to the question, what does it look like? How do we know if someone is walking by the Spirit? What will manifest in the day-to-day -day life of a person walking by the Spirit. Well, we've seen firstly that it will be marked by the absence of sin. Those who walk by the Spirit will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so the works of the flesh, those sins that we've worked through over the last two weeks, will not characterize their lives. But instead, their lives will be marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, these attributes, virtues, and characteristics. Now, this is a wonderful and actually very practical list for us. You know, many people struggle with the question of assurance. How can I know that I'm saved? Well, actually, one of the ways that the Bible tells us to gain assurance is to examine our lives for fruit like this. We read last week in our corporate reading uh, from 2 Peter, where Peter encouraged us to make our calling and election sure. Gain assurance of your calling and election. Now how? Well, in 2 Peter, it's by examining our lives to see if we have the virtues that he had just listed. Now, as always, we must be careful not to get the wrong idea. It is not our performance of good deeds, nor the presence of these virtues in us that saves us. As we know, it is the finished work of Christ alone, received by grace alone, through faith alone, which saves us. It is the finished work of Christ and not the things that we do. And so we understand this list in Galatians, Paul refers to as the fruit of the Spirit. These are therefore things that the Spirit of God 
will produce inside believers. So as we examine ourselves to see whether or not this fruit is being produced in our lives, it can be an excellent way of gaining assurance. Right? These things are marks of grace upon the soul. They provide evidence that we are saved, evidence that we have received new hearts, and evidence that the Spirit of God has been at work within us. If, however, we find that there is no fruit, these things are not growing and increasing in our lives, then this ought to serve as a wake-up call for us. We'll come back to look at what to do about it at the end. So let's dive in. We'll cover the first three on the list this morning. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So let's begin with love. Agape. This is love, benevolence, goodwill. I don't think it's a stretch to say that love is the chief Christian virtue. God is love. 1 John 4, verse 8. And as Bill Mounts points out, any biblical definition of love, therefore, starts with God and not with us. Now this will actually guard us against one of the common errors that we see in our world, and that is uh, differing definitions of love, to allow love to be defined completely apart from God or his word. I think it's been well said that a lot of the culture war is a battle over the dictionary. And you know all that's needed is to redefine certain words like love, fill them with your own meaning, and you can completely alter and skew Christian ethics. So for example, we hear from the advocates of various forms of sexual perversion that love is love. They will then argue that if we loved them, we would affirm them and all of their choices. Now, if we granted them their assumed definition of love, we would find ourselves in a pickle. If love means, as they assert, unqualified affirmation, and we know, of course, as Christians, we are called to love, then it would seem as though they are right. If we grant their definition, give them control, over the dictionary, then we would have to say, yes, love requires the affirmation and celebration of any and all choices that anyone would make or any identity they would claim for themselves. The fact is, love does not mean unqualified affirmation. 1 Corinthians 13, uh, quite possibly the most famous wedding text in the entire Bible, gives us a great definition of love that we'll work through shortly. Uh, and it contains this statement in verse 6. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So if we are going to define love biblically, then we find that love is on the side of righteousness. 
Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, and of course, God is the one who defines wrongdoing. God is love. In order to properly define love, we must begin with the character of God. And so where do we go to find out the character of God? Well, one of the best places for us would be his commands. If we want to know what God is like, we can look at the kinds of things he requires. We find his character expressed through his commands. You, know, you see that with the pagan gods as well, being the bloodthirsty gods that they were. They required things like human sacrifice. So God, what he commands, will reveal something of who he is. God is love, his character is revealed through his law, and so it should not surprise us that the Bible says that the whole law is summarized by love. Love is the summary of God's law, as we've seen in Galatians. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. As the Lord Jesus answered when he was asked, which is the greatest commandment? Which commandment summarizes the most? Which encapsulates most of the law? What command would best be seen as a summary of the law? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The fruit that the Spirit will produce in believers among them will be love. Love biblically defined. Love that is in accordance in every way with God's holy law, with love for God and love for neighbor. Love for God that will, in fact, pour over into love for our neighbors. So follow this. If God is love, and if God's law is love, then we must not seek to define love apart from or in opposition to God and his law. True love, the kind of love that the Holy Spirit produces, does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love can therefore never be used to support sin. Love therefore cannot mean to give unqualified affirmation. Because love will never affirm, encourage, or celebrate sin, for sin is lawlessness, sin is the breaking of God's law, and God's law is love, therefore love cannot celebrate sin. Romans 13 verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. For as the King James has it, love worketh no ill. So then, love desires what is truly good for others, what is truly best for others, as God defines it. All right, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13. You can turn with me there. 
1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. See the place of love in the Christian life. You know, all these wonderful things, these things Christians would hold in high esteem, uh, the miraculous gifts of faith to move mountains, uh, biblical and theological knowledge and wisdom, even acts of heroic self-sacrifice to give up your body to be burned. All of these things, Paul says, without love, are nothing. You know, we add to the list for ourselves, what virtuous things do you pursue? For myself, it would be something like this. Even if I could preach the greatest sermons, draw the largest crowds, write books and blogs, and teach many people, but had not love, I am nothing. If you were a homemaker, it might be, even if I raised many children, hosted thousands of families, created the most beautiful and welcoming home, cooked the greatest meals, and had the picture-perfect family, but had not love. What have I accomplished? So challenge yourself. Do you love God? Do you love your neighbor? If you were to examine your own heart, what would you find? Would it be love or its opposite? Selfishness, bitterness, hostility, arrogance and covetousness? Or would you find patience and kindness, self-sacrifice, steadfastness, hope, and endurance? All the things that Paul said are in love. It is the love of God inside of you. Does it manifest itself through your words and your deeds? The love that let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, 
we also ought to love one another. First John 4, 7 to 11. And in all of this, as we reflect on love, we must continue to define love biblically. We must not allow secular culture to misdefine love. A man who loves well will not become a soft and effeminate man. Once again, love is not simple affirmation. We must love what is right, and as a result, we will therefore hate what is evil. Love, therefore, will not turn us into amorphous blobs of warm emotion. In fact, to love the way that God requires of us, we will need soft hearts but stiff spines, for love will require courage. It will require the courage to protect, defend, to confront, rebuke, correct, and exhort. Love will require self-sacrifice. Christ, of course, is our ultimate example. As he displayed, we are called to a radical, courageous, and valiant love. To be willing to face down the powers of darkness rather than bow to them. To fight evil, contend for truth, and defend innocence. Love will not make you a sissy. Love cannot be used as a cover for cowardice. We are to love as God loves, to love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, even when we were yet his enemies. And we are called to love our enemies, to return evil for good. So let us love God and neighbor and so fulfill to move on. Next on our list is joy. Fruit of the Spirit is love, then joy. And the Greek word for joy is kara. This means joy, delight, gladness, cheerfulness. As Bill Mounts' expository dictionary defines it, he says it is the antonym or the opposite of grief and sorrow. Quote, kara denotes joy, happiness, gladness, close quote. And so we see these are the kinds of things that are meant to characterize the Christian life. And so a life that is walked by the Spirit will produce joy. Joy will be one of the fruits. Now, it was the beginning of a pretty radical paradigm shift for me, a different way of looking at things. When I first heard a preacher uh, show me from Scripture that joy is actually commanded in the Bible. Philippians 4, verse 4, you may know this, says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So you notice that is not just an indicative statement. Paul is not simply stating a fact or describing something. Rather, this is an imperative and instruction. He is commanding the church to rejoice, do this, and do this always. And just so you, if I really drive home the importance, Paul says, I'm going to repeat myself again. 
again I will sing. Rejoice. You know, it's interesting, of all the instructions and commands that Paul gives in Philippians, there's none other that he emphasizes so dramatically. Now, of course, we don't ever need a command to be repeated in Scripture. If God's Word were to command something once and he never repealed it, that would be enough for it to be binding for all of time. Amen. And so God doesn't need to repeat himself for his Word to be binding and authoritative. But the fact that this does get repeated so often in Scripture, and even back-to-back in this one passage, should clue us into something. Joy is a big deal. This is something that is meant to characterize the entire Christian life. It is what the Holy Spirit will produce in his people. Christians will be people of joy. We will seek to obey this command. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. Or as he says in Philippians 3, verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, simply rejoice always. Be joyful always. And so here's how it changes things. When you find out, when you discover, realize that this is a command. What do we call it? When we disobey a command from the Lord. Sin. What are we called to do with sin? We are to put sin to death. Therefore, joylessness, the failure to obey this command, joylessness is a sin to battle against. So if I notice in myself that I am not rejoicing in the Lord... I have a duty to put my joylessness to death. All sin, all disobedience must be killed. We mortify sin, make it dead. Colossians 3 verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. And so all sin, all lack of obedience, we are duty-bound to our sovereign God, King, Maker, and Redeemer to obey all of His commands all the way down. Which means we have a duty to pursue joy in Him. We must therefore fight for joy, battle for joy, labor to get our hearts happy in God. Now, one of the major obstacles to convincing Christians of their duty to pursue joy in God is the way that people will often define joy. The objection comes, oh, but pastor, you need to understand there is a difference between joy and happiness. Their argument goes, happiness is the bubbly and superficial, circumstantial feeling that comes and goes, uh, but joy is the more deep-seated and enduring affection that endures. And so you need to understand, the fact that I'm not happy doesn't mean that I'm failing to rejoice on the inside. I'm deeply joyful. I'm just not very happy right now. Those are different things. Well, the problem with this 
is that the Bible doesn't share that distinction. Simply look up the word kara, joy, and you will find this distinction doesn't hold up. These words are synonyms. They are used interchangeably in Scripture. Strong's Concordance describes kara, joy, as cheerfulness, calm delight, gladness, or even to be overflowing with joy and gladness. You try to look up the word happiness in Mounce's Expository Dictionary, guess which Greek word you find? Kara, joy, happiness, the opposite, the antonym of sorrow and grief. Randy Alcorn, who wrote a book on this topic, says, Biblically, I have asked people, could you show me any passage that suggests some contrast or even substantial difference between happiness and joy, and there just is no such thing. Close quote. Now in my own life, I used this artificial and unbiblical distinction between happiness and joy in order to excuse my own bad attitude. But I would use this distinction anytime I came across a passage like this one that commanded joy. And so I could walk around with a little rain cloud over my head while still believing that I was being obedient to Scripture. If joy doesn't have to look like joy, then I can mope around, look as cheerful as a wet sock, and think that I'm still manifesting this fruit of the Spirit. So let's put that argument to rest. Do not let yourself off the hook by believing that you can have a joyless form of joy and still be manifesting this fruit of the Spirit and still be obeying this command. And so if you find yourself lacking in joy, put your joylessness to death. Fight it like you would fight any other sin. Battle for joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now that gets challenging for us, because in this life we face some hard things. What we find is that Scripture even tells us to have joy in our sufferings. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 3. <clears throat> Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. James 1 is very similar. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
The Christian life is to be characterized by joy. And we see that even in suffering, we are called to rejoice. Not because we are sick-minded and simply enjoy pain. We're not gluttons for punishment. But we see that God intends to use our trials to grow our character. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance, character, and character hope. In James, the trials and testing we face are designed by God to produce steadfastness that we may grow into maturity. How can we have joy at all times? How can we learn to rejoice even in suffering? I think the key is in understanding what is at the root of our joy. And I found this very interesting. The word kara, joy, is closely related to charis, grace. The helps word study even defines kara, joy, as being glad for grace. Being glad for grace. Being aware of grace. Kairu, uh, rejoice, is therefore to rejoice for grace. And here the puzzle starts to fit together. The Apostle Paul could write a joy-soaked letter like Philippians while languishing in a Roman prison because he knew the grace of God. He had forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The enmity with God has been taken away. The punishment due to us for our sin taken on our behalf by our Savior. For those who are in Christ, we are adopted into the family of God, and as sons of God, we will be inheritors of his kingdom and of everlasting life. There's a story of the man traveling on a road uh, who had just received word that he received a great inheritance, millions of dollars. And he's on the way to the city to go receive this great inheritance. And on the way there, the wheel falls off his cart. And he gets off his cart, goes down, and breaks down weeping. My cart, my cart, everything is lost. It's only a mile from the city. Brothers and sisters, the inheritance we have is so much greater than money. And we are like that man weeping by the side of the road over his cartwheel, the wheel of his cart, when we give in to sorrow in this life. We have received the Spirit of God who works in us, giving us the grace that we need in every moment to honor God with our lives. And we recognize that even in our trials, our great and good Heavenly Father is working in them to sanctify us, to conform us evermore to the image of Christ. And so we can then rejoice in the Lord always. <clears throat> Moving on to our final attribute this morning, peace. Uh, Greek is irene, and this is equivalent to the Hebrew term shalom. It is peace, quietness, 
rest. Mounts' expository dictionary describes it as a state of being that lacks nothing and has no fear of being troubled in its tranquility. It is euphoria coupled with security. Another word study described it as a state of untroubled, undisturbed well-being. As Christians, we are called as well to be characterized by peace. Among the fruits that the Spirit of God will produce in His people is peace. So firstly, where does the peace of the Christian come from? You know, we live in a day in which true inner peace seems like something that is very, very rare. I would guess that if you were to ask the average person if their lives were characterized by peace, by a state of untroubled, undisturbed well-being, they would probably say no. We live in an anxious age. It's amazing how many people struggle with anxiety. We are tense, uptight, worried about all kinds of things, and yet quite often, many people are actually worried about the wrong things. What do I mean? If people could gain true and perfect perspective of their lives, if they could see clearly for a moment what their biggest problems truly are, I think many would realize that they have had peace regarding the wrong things and have been worried about the wrong things. What is truly the biggest problem that we face as human beings? We are by nature sinners and we are at enmity with God. We, by nature, do not have peace with God. As His Word tells us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Scripture also tells us the penalty for this. The wages of sin is death. Now the fact that we are all the creatures of God does not automatically make us his children. Kids, listen closely. Even the fact that you are born into a Christian home does not automatically make you a child of God. Here's what the Bible tells us. We are not the children of God, but Ephesians 2 verse 3, we were by nature children of of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so as anxious and worried as people tend to be, they are not nearly worried or anxious enough. Or maybe better to say, they are not worried about the right things. Whatever they think the biggest problems in their lives might be, those problems fail in comparison with this, if you do not have peace with God, you are a child of wrath. You are under the sentence of condemnation. And if you die in this condition, you will remain 
under the wrath of God for eternity. You will be punished in hell forever. And so however big your other problems may seem, they are nothing compared to this. Whatever your earthly troubles might be, they will all be over when this life ends. You then will have an eternity of trouble, to put it very, very mildly. So what is the solution? What is the source of the peace of a Christian? It is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross, taking the sentence of condemnation that was on his people and bearing it himself. The wrath that we deserved was placed on him. He made propitiation. He was the wrath bearer, the wrath remover. He took it upon himself, drank that bitter cup down to the dregs, rose from the dead, and now proclaims to the world that there is salvation in him. The message is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the promise of the gospel, anyone who will repent and believe will be made right with God, declared righteous in Christ, and this is the ground of our peace. Romans 5. We read from verse 3. Let's back up to verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the ground of our peace. Since we have been justified, declared righteous by faith. We now have peace with God. The biggest problem that we have has been solved by Christ. The anxiety that we should have felt when we realized that we were the enemies of God should now vanish as we are made not only his friends, not only his loyal and loving subjects, but we are made his children. So we see all through Scripture that God has promised to care for his children. Brothers and sisters, do you lack peace? Look to God and his promises. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. Your eternity is secure. Think of how small your current problems will seem after 100 years spent in the presence of God. After a thousand years. After a million years. And on we will go further up and further in. Think on all that God has promised to be for you in Christ. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He has promised that his mercies are new every morning. He will grant you the grace that you need in every situation to honor him 
He has promised to be working in all things to your good and his glory. He has given you all these wonderful means of grace to strengthen you. His word, prayer, sacraments, community of faith. Look to God and be at peace. And just to get really, really practical for a moment here, let's turn to Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything. Notice again, another command, anxiety would be the opposite of peace. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So according to this passage, what is the remedy for anxiety? What is the solution to a lack of peace. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Now it's amazing to me how often I still find my flesh to be taking the lead. For when I get anxious, it seems then harder than ever to actually get down on my knees and pray. But if we would take these words to heart, then prayer would be the first thing we would do. As it says, do not be anxious, but pray. Tell God exactly what's going on. Tell Him exactly how you feel. And do so while praising and thanking Him. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And the promise that follows. And the peace of God which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I actually love that phrase, the peace which surpasses understanding, because it implies that God has not changed your circumstances, but he has given you peace in spite of it. Right? If God had changed your circumstances, then it would be the peace that makes perfect sense. So the problem is gone. But no, it's the peace that surpasses understanding. Whatever the thing that might be causing your anxiety, you pray about it. God does not promise to change your circumstances every time. Again, Paul wrote this letter from jail. God does not promise to change your circumstances. Your situation might stay exactly the same. But he does promise you that his peace, which surpasses understanding, will guard your heart and your mind. So very practically, if you are lacking peace, pray. Pray fervently. Pray consistently. Pray with others. Pray with thanksgiving. And pray with boldness. And this really leads into our pursuit of all of the fruit of the Spirit. While we do have the duty that we seem to battle joylessness, lovelessness, and anxiety within ourselves, 
We must always keep in mind that these things are described as fruit. That means they are things which will be produced in us by the Spirit of God. And so if we find this fruit lacking in ourselves, the main solution is not to focus primarily on stirring these things up in ourselves, but the main solution is to walk by the Spirit. For He is the one who produces this fruit in you. You know, as with a fruit tree, if it's not producing fruit, you don't just pour water on the branches. Rather, you nourish the root. So with us, nourish the root. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and the Spirit will produce this fruit in you. Pursue God in sincerity. Walk the paths where he has said he may be found. Prayer, scripture, meditation on the word, singing, worshiping with the saints. Bring your life into alignment with his word in every way that you can think of. It is through beholding his glory that we are transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another, 2 Corinthians 3.18. As we see him and savor him, he becomes our delight. We long to obey his law in love for God and others. We find him to be a source of joy. The Spirit produces this fruit in the life of a believer, and the result will be blessing to everyone around us. And really, this is how the kingdom of God blesses the world. As the gospel goes out, I should say it's one of the ways the kingdom of God blesses the world. As the gospel goes out, wherever it takes root, men and women are transformed, filled with the Holy Spirit, who then produces this fruit in them. They become a people who will love their neighbors as themselves, people who will not return evil for evil, but will overcome evil with good. They will become a people overwhelmed by the love they have received from God and therefore desire to show that same love to others. They become a people who live with joy. A people delighting in the goodness of God, delighting in the grace of God. They live at peace with God and with one another. And that is nothing short of a vision for world transformation. And just think of how different even this area could be if all of the professing believers were truly manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. So we must begin with ourselves. Don't make excuses, but pursue the Lord. Walk by the Spirit. Read your Bible. Become a man or woman of prayer. Lead your home in daily family worship. Bring up your children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Commit yourself to the accountability of a faithful, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. Get baptized and start walking with other believers. God has told us where he may be found. And so may we pursue the Lord and grow in love, joy, and peace.